0: Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk.
1: Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy, and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show, we go deep into method acting with the author of a fascinating new book, *The Method: How the 20th Century Learned to Act*. We remember the legendary comedian Bill Hicks. Plus, Royce Evan frontman Paul Walsh on his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Do hope you're doing well and you survived the very inclement weather, albeit slightly oddly named powerful storms, Eunice and Dudley. It's not the type of thing to instill fear, but they ravaged the country. So uh, even if they were oddly named, they were quite powerful. Now, I have a fascinating interview I want to bring you. So I'm not gonna to spend too long on telling you about this week's TV, but I quickly want to mention this.
2: I've been trying to be signed, trying to be a millionaire, high, use two lifelines in the same hospital with Biggie Smalls died. The doctor said I had blood clots, but I ain't Jamaican man. Story on MTV, and I ain't trying to make a band. I swear this right here, history in the making, man.
1: Now that is, of course, Kanye West, the Mercurial hip hop music star, celebrity, extraordinaire, controversial fellow, problematic fellow, and lots of ways troubled fellow there is a new netflix documentary which landed this week a three-parter and it's called genius a kanye trilogy and it's genius as in j-e-n-n hyphen y-u-h-s which i presuming denotes genius i mean i'm not entirely sure it's a remarkable piece of watching so far i've only seen the first Episode. I didn't get time to watch the other two, which are dropping every week. Anyway, the first one was pretty hypnotic because what it is, is Kanye West began life as a record producer, as a guy who was making beats for other guys to use, and in particular Jay-Z. And at a very young age, he was quite successful at that, but he was desperate to become his own hip-hop star, his own rap star. And he basically teamed up with this stand-up comedian in Chicago where they grew up, this guy called Coody. And Coody decides that he's going to film him over a very long period of time as he attempts to become a star. And that's what certainly the first part of this documentary was all about. And you see Kanye West literally going into record offices, rapping for people on the fly, hoping they'll hear him. You see him taking out his braces to rap. You see this kind of optimistic, egotistical, insecure, overly confident, young African-American with a clearly... uh, titanic talent for rapping desperate to become a star and the footage is incredible because they had so much of it now the second episode by what i understand follows him recording his first album and then the third one is him going full Kanye and getting up to all sorts of crazy things like interrupting Taylor Swift on stage and running for president or talking about running for president and, and, and having various meltdowns. I haven't got to that. Apparently, from what I've read, it it stays very interesting. But certainly the first episode was kind of eye-opening. Uh, this was a different Kanye that we're used to seeing. He was a very vulnerable Quite pleasant uh, at times, young guy trying to become a music star. And it was all about the music. So I found it quite compelling, I have to say. So that's Jinyas, a Kanye trilogy now streaming on Netflix. And then just really quickly, a world away from Kanye West is Home of the Year, which returned on RTE with Hugh Wallace, Amanda Bone, and a new interior designer, Sarah Crosgrove. In case you've never seen Home of the Year, each week, the three hosts go into a house and into three houses, and they look around and they give it marks out of ten. And it's the simplest thing imaginable, but it's incredibly good to watch. Uh, it really is. Call it comfort viewing, you know. Call it what you want. Call it crap if you want. I. It's it's a delightful television. It really is. And and Hugh Wallace is just. I just enjoy his presence. He makes me smile. And you know, you 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 feel kind of, or I certainly feel middle-aged watching it you know and that's not a criticism of the show but I'm sitting there getting enthused about statement lampshades and soft furnishings so you know but I guess that's where I'm at in life you know maybe I'll put on some Kanye West next week afterwards just to tip the balance to make sure I still feel slightly rock and roll you can email me streamtime at com, or you can tweet me john underscore Fordy, to share your views on Kanye West or home of the air or anything movie or tv related at all Now method acting, the idea of an actor or an actress going deep into character and almost becoming that character and sometimes getting up to all sorts of crazy things like sleeping in farmhouses for three nights or whatever has been hugely influential on the cinema over the last 80 years and beyond and in many ways has been responsible for so many iconic performances from Marlon Brando to Marilyn Monroe and so many more others, too many to mention. It began with the legendary Russian actor Stanislav. Slavsky. It transferred to America in the middle of the last century and was modified by famous proponents like Stella Adler, Lee Strasberg, with lots of fighting and rival theories. The method remains part of contemporary cinema. Now, this whole fascinating story about its history and its Resonance today, and indeed on in the history of cinema, has been put together in a fascinating new book called The Method How the 20th Century Learned to Act. A great title and a very accurate title. And its author, Isaac Butler, joins me live from New York. Hi, Isaac. How are you?
0: Doing just great. Thanks for having me, John.
1: My pleasure. Now, listen, there's a couple of things here. We have about 15 minutes. I could talk to you about this all day. I talk to actors most weeks. And I realized when I was reading your book that so. Much of the performances, or so many of the performances that I've loved, have been so influenced by the method and the system and all that. So I don't want to go down a rabbit hole with you. So you keep me out of the rabbit hole if I get there.
0: But <laughs> okay, just we'll keep we'll, we'll keep each other out of it because yeah, I, I'm very capable of going down to myself.
1: I, I can imagine, but just from the outset, the method and and how we understand it. It's a watermark in cinema, aside from theater, though, right? Because I mean, from when people like Brando started doing it, cinema has changed irrevocably as a result of it, or has it?
0: Oh, I think it's absolutely changed irrevocably. I mean, um, for a, a bunch of different reasons. But, you know, our ideas of what a good performance looks like or feels like, Absolutely shaped by the method. In fact, so much shaped by the method that, you know, even if you're watching actors who don't use it or come from a different tradition, for example, the, you know, British classical theater tradition, a great acting tradition, right? Lots mm-hmm. of people are trained in that. But the end result of what their performances look like on film uh, resembles a method American actor a lot more than it does, say, a performance by Olivier or Gilgood from the 40s.
1: Mm. And so, you know, I know you've used the example before of Cary Grant, and it it seems like a very good one to me because Cary Grant was the type of actor, he was wonderful and, and in some of the best movies of all time, but he always played a Cary Grant type in a way. And whereas the method... That started to change that you could have someone like Robert De Niro who could be a priest in one movie and then in another being an existential crisis taxi driver. I mean, people stopped, I don't want to say being typecast, but you know what I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the classic studio system that really lasted from the birth of the talkies until the end of the 1940s relied on type. They actually needed typecasting. Uh, They were making Mm. so many movies at once. The actors were on salary at the studios. And so they were really selling the persona of the actors. So when you went to go see a Cary Grant movie, you were going to see Cary Grant play a Cary Grant type of character. And those types and personas were highly constructed they they um and they would sell the idea of those types as an extension of the actor to the public with often completely fictional biographies and so um that all started to fall apart for a bunch of reasons. One of them was the studio system started to end. The federal government essentially broke it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it they... had become
1: quite a monster, it has to be said.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, yes. And so the the studios lose a Supreme Court case in the end of the 1940s. They have to sell off their movie theater holdings. They don't have the money to, you know, the, their ability to tolerate risk goes way down. And they start cutting loose all their design departments and actors in the studio system kind of crumbles. And at that moment, the method ascends. Um I don't think that's necessarily you know coincidental. I mm-hmm. mean, I think those things have a lot to do with each other, but also once the method starts ascending, it changes our ideas of what, a good performance is and what we want from it so what we want instead is versatility from actors and we want the sense that the actor is really becoming the character on some level we want to lose ourselves in that imagined reality
1: yeah. And just for so you know, the casual listener, I mean, when we talk about method acting, and I gave a brief, possibly incorrect snapshot of how it all came about with Stanislawski and then it moves to the States with Stanislavski and there's Strasbourg and differing views. But at base it's I suppose it's the idea of you leave who you are at the door and you try and get inside the actor, albeit as you maybe.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, at the core of the method and the system, and which is Stanislavski's name for his technique, yes. and and all of the different things that flow from Stanislavski in the United States, at the core of it is this idea that in Russian is called perizhavanya. And uh, in English, it's roughly translated as experiencing or re-experiencing. And it is the moment when the actor's consciousness and the fictional consciousness of the character kind of become one the actor isn't totally losing themselves in the character because that's actually madness you know what i mean but it is the moment where the actor is able to experience the imagined reality of the character Mm.
1: And then we start, you know, it becomes almost uh, not cliched, but you get into, you know, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis would stay up for three nights in a row to, and I'm emphasizing, and it's not even him, but that an actor would stay up three nights in a row to look tired or the famous, you know, uh, Justin Hoffman went jogging to get into the jogging scene. Like it becomes at times also about actually preparing in the way your character would have to prepare.
0: Yeah, which is really fascinating because actually in his memoir, Stanislavski tells a story, a very pointed story about himself as a young actor trying that and it not working. Mm. So Stanislavski was not having actors do that, you know, Mm. uh, and, and actually a lot of the teachers in the United States were pretty against that as well.
1: Um,
0: you know, the whole point of the actor is to create the imagined reality, not to live the Mm. the real thing. You know, Strasberg said this thing of, um, You know, when an actor says you need to really hit me in a fight scene, that's not acting. That's the real thing happening. The whole point is that you've entered the imagined reality, but you feel the punch. The problem is that, um, you know, when you're on a film set, it's, it's a lot of hurry up and wait. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of things being shot out of order. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the actor has to be ready to go the second the director calls action. And and often the actors are not checked with before that happens. So actors start doing a lot of this sort of stuff, never breaking character, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth, as a kind of workaround to being fully in the moment whenever they need to be.
1: Okay. So, I mean, none of the famous proponents like Adler or Strasbourg or even Stanislausi ever suggested that people should learn languages or have take ice baths for three days beforehand. But this was something that people like De Niro did to almost pass the time.
0: Yeah, well, no, not to pass the time, but, you know, Stella Adler, who was Robert De Niro's acting teacher, uh, really encouraged a very intense process of research. So if you were going to play someone, if you were going to play an 18th century viscount or whatever, right, Mm. she'd say, go to a museum and look at paintings of 18th century viscounts and see how they held their body and try to do the same thing. And then read books about that time period, you know, educate yourself, you know, so that you can really get into that world. Robert De Niro Pioneers a sort of extreme version of that. Mm-hmm where his research involves going as deep into the character's actual behavior as possible. So when he has to play a baseball player and bang the drum slowly, and he's never played baseball before, he learns how to play baseball. He interviews baseball players. He goes to Georgia where the character is from and has people read his lines into a tape recorder. He learns how to chew tobacco and then plots out in his script how he's going to do the chewing tobacco to kind of reveal the character's subtext. You know, he goes just really, really far Mm. into it And then he goes further and further into it with sort of each subsequent movie until we get to Raging Bull, where he very famously, you know, gained, lost yeah. a lot of weight to play the young um, boxer and then gains a bunch of weight, you know, to to, to play the retired man. You know, so so then it, it, that performance is just enormously influential on everything that comes after it.
1: I, I gather it was pretty dangerous by the end of it, though. I mean, he, he spent a summer in Italy just eating.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think gaining 60 pounds yeah. over the course of a couple of months is a great <laughs> idea. You know what I mean? For anyone's yeah. metabolism. Although wouldn't we all love a job where we're like, I'm sorry for my job. I have to eat everything I can find in France and Italy for four months. Yeah, you know, yeah. that sounds pretty great, right? There but, are worse uh, gigs, yes. Exactly. But, you know, it gave him high blood pressure, rashes on his thighs. He couldn't work as long. They had to shorten the shooting days. Um, you know, he had trouble tying his shoes, but, you know, he's said that it was absolutely worth it because it got him really in touch with the reality of that character
1: mm. you know one thing i realized from your book as well if if you take you know maybe the sea change i know people like montgomery cliff started using the method of the system but marlon brando seems to be the time when it becomes really almost you know, not the high water mark of it, because there's more to come, but maybe one of the first, most famous examples of it. But what I realised from your book is that the method for all its good things and maybe some of the problems with it, it democratised cinema in a way, or it made it More of a working class thing, and maybe even a less white thing. And had it not been for the method, there may have been no, you know, De Niro, Pacino, the clues in the name Brando. Because prior to people like Brando doing it, you know, like you already alluded to, people spoke in a certain way. There was the kind of mid Atlantic thing, people say, I have that now, incidentally, but let's not get into that right now. But (laughs) I mean, people like Brando, it really changed cinema in terms of, you know, kids from the slums, for want of a better phrase, could get into movies because you were allowed to talk the way you spoke.
0: Yes, that's absolutely true. Uh, And people were very angry about that at the time. You know, the old guard was angry about that at the time and would sort of level a lot of charges against method actors about their diction, some of which were true. Some of it was difficult to understand, but a Mm. lot of it was actually about, you know, this is also a period in the United States where whiteness is expanding to include uh, ethnic immigrants like Jews and Italians. And a lot of that is really about, Policing whiteness and policing who gets to be white. And in fact, you know, one of the things that changes with the graduate in 1968 is a small very Jewish looking actor like Dustin Hoffman can become the leading man and a romantic hero in mm. a movie, you know? And so, and after that, you know, Al Pacino said, um, that he had trouble, you know, holding on to. he was almost fired from the Godfather early on in the shooting. Yeah. And one of the reasons why was that, you know, it was inconceivable that someone who looked so Italian would be the leading man in a movie, even mm. though it's a movie about Italians, yeah. you know? So, So yeah, you have a lot of working class actors. You have a lot of children of immigrants. Lee Strasberg himself is an immigrant from a shtetl. You know, um, uh, you have a lot of those kinds of folks breaking into the movies and there's a lot of kind of horror at that from Mm. the old guard.
1: Yeah. It's funny you mentioned Dustin Hoffman because I just thought of a famous scene from Midnight Cowboy and he's walking down the road and a car gets in his way and he does that famous, I'm walking here, I'm walking here. And by all accounts, that that just happened. They were shooting on the street and a cab got in his way and he did that. So it seems to me Hoffman, certainly in that movie, was, was very much in some kind of method
0: acting. Yes, well, Hoffman is absolutely a method devotee. uh, Mm. uh, And he was, since he was a young man, very much a devotee of that. You know, one of the things that method actors become known for that's a positive is they're so in the moment that when things go awry, they're able to improvise Mm. as their characters in a really clear way. Also, at the actor's studio, they're doing a lot of improvisation exercises. So, actually, you know, yeah, I'm walking here as a classic one. I've taught that line to my daughter, you know, so Mm. that she can shout it at people in New York City where I live. (laughs) Um, But, you know, uh, 20 years earlier in the live TV drama movement, which was this, you know, this flourishing but short-lived art form where people were doing sort of plays live on sound stages. um, One of the reasons why they loved using actor studio actors, so why they loved using method actors is when things went wrong and they went wrong constantly, the actors were able to improvise around it and keep going.
1: Wow, that's fascinating. And, you know, I'm just conscious of the fact that when I'm talking here, I'm mentioning, you know, people I love, De Niro, Brando. But this has been influential for female actresses. Well, I know uh, Monroe, Marilyn Monroe, she studied with Strasbourg, I think it was. I mean, I I I see it. I don't know. Maybe you could tell me Meryl Streep. I mean, I don't know if she uses the method or not, but God, she knows how to act. So, I mean, this has affected actresses just as much.
0: Absolutely. Meryl Streep is actually very vocally opposed to the method, but there's lots of great actresses who come from that lineage. Um, Eva Marie Saint, Mm. Jane Fonda, Shelley Winters, the great Ellen Burstyn, who Mm. is currently the co-president of the Actors Studio. She also took it over after Lee Strasberg died and kind of made sure that it would exist as a permanent institution without him. Um, there's, There's a number of them. Kim Stanley. I mean, there's a lot of great actresses who come out of that tradition as
1: well. And I had no idea. Meryl Streep is particularly opposed to method acting.
0: Yeah, I mean, Meryl Streep, it's interesting. Meryl Streep is a kind of, almost like Brando before her, a kind of mercurial genius who hmm. doesn't, who, who, has altered her technique multiple times to, to fit the needs of the role. And she has said in interviews, I don't actually have a fixed technique, but from Mm -hmm. the get go, she was opposed to the idea that an actor needs to go really deep into their subconscious and to past traumas in order to um, realize the role. She was, she was, you know, there were acting teachers of hers at Yale that tried to prevail upon her to do that. And she was just like, I don't need to do that. And I don't actually think Mm -hmm. actors need to do that. And I don't think it's healthy. And uh, sure enough, she, clearly doesn't need to do it because she does a lot of great performances. You yeah,
1: know? yeah. She, she's managing fine without it. Listen, yeah, exactly. time is running out, but I have to ask you two quick things. Firstly, sure. I mentioned to you, I, I interview a lot of actors, so forgive the name drop, but I was talking to Benedict Cumberbatch just before Christmas about the power of the dog, and he was talking to me about learning to ride a horse, uh, whistling, rolling a cigarette with one hand, all this stuff he did, dancing with Jesse Plemons. Only yesterday, I was interviewing the cast of a new Netflix series, about Vikings called Valhalla and one of them was talking to me about wearing vegan leather and reading Beowulf, right? So I like the method is still whether they know they're doing it or not but very much alive and keeping Hollywood afloat in some fashion.
0: I I completely agree. You know, a a lot of that comes back to, as I said, what Stella Adler wanted actors to do with research, that you had to learn the behavior of the character Mm. to be able to do it convincingly. I mean, if you think about, for example, how often we watch TV and they're holding a coffee cup and it's very clear there's no coffee in it at all, that it's just an empty cup. You know, she would fix that by being like, rehearse over and over again with a full coffee cup until Mm. you know what that feels like. And then you can do it. If you have to iron shirts in a play, you need to be good enough at ironing a shirt that it looks convincing you know and so um, to her acting was a sacred heroic job and you had to earn the right you had to earn your place to be there. And the way you did that was through that kind of mastery of behavior. So if your mm. character has to roll a cigarette with one hand on camera, you better be able to do it so they don't have to cut to a hand model or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: that could be awkward. Listen, finally then, and I was fascinated to read about this, but, you know, often books like this are written and it's, you know, it might sound almost like an academic thing, but you've gone very deep into the whole world of the method and on movie sets. But you had a very personal reason I suppose writing this because you you dabbled with the method yourself and literally had a, a, a road to damascus moment and said I can't do this would you mind sharing that with us
0: uh first of all I love that you called it a road to, to damascus moment so thank you for that <laughs> but yes I mean uh, this is me thank Christian you for an your...
1: influence you know I'm, yeah, exactly. I'm Irish born catholic I can't help it
0: Well, I mean, I sort of think this is a story, the story of the method is very much like the early Christian squabbling over which gospel is the most important, (laughs) you know, uh, uh, and Lee Strasberg is, I guess, St. Paul. So, um, uh, you know, for, for me, um, I was very interested in this as a story uh, uh, as well as the ideas and trying to tell that story as clearly as possible, in part because the story kind of happened to me. So I was a child professional actor in the Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C. area, and I took um, a lot of acting classes that were kind of Stanislavski based and had to do with going deep into yourself and, you know, unlocking the uncomfortable parts of yourself and using that as material in a role. And when I got to college, I was not to brag, but cast as the lead in a show immediately my freshman year of college. And, uh, it was a show called talk radio by Eric Bogosian. Um, and if you don't know that play, you know, if you're the lead in that play, you basically are chain smoking for an hour and a half. And at about the 70 minute mark, you have a big nervous breakdown on set. And, and is this, um,
1: this is the same play that was turned into the Oliver Stone movie talk radio. Er,
0: yes. Yeah, yeah. Turned into the, the plot is a little bit different because right. that movie has another source, which is a real life story of a. Oh. Okay. dj who was murdered yeah. um but yes it has a uh, yes uh the same same i actually love that oliver stone movie but yes yeah. the same the same text so i was doing talk radio and uh i was smoking real cigarettes uh 15 of them over the course of the show and so i was feeling physically ill while doing the show and also i just went real deep inside all my kind of insecurities and depressions and feeling like i had to perform for people and sort of all the stuff that's aligned with the character i just went really really deep into that and it uh really screwed me up to be completely honest uh for the couple weeks that i was doing the show i would feel terrible when it was done i felt physically ill i felt mentally ill yeah i would go back to my you know seven foot by 11 foot concrete dorm room and i would stare at a blank wall and just you know breathe and wait for myself to kind of come back together it was a horrible experience and i um Uh, quit essentially quit pursuing acting after that. I just thought I'm not tough enough to keep doing this. Um, And so I both quit acting at that moment and gained a huge new level of respect for actors because, you know, they have to be so vulnerable and so tough at the same time and uh, it's, it's it's really startling to me that anyone could do that, to be completely honest.
1: Yeah. Well, you put your money where your mouth is uh, and the method was a little too much for you. But your book, The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, is an absolutely fascinating read. We have a lot of movie aficionados and movie lovers who listen to this show. And I'm highly recommending the book for Christmas and sooner. You should buy it now. I presume it's available on Amazon, Isaac, right?
0: It's available wherever books are sold and actually the audiobook is narrated by me. So if you're an audiobook person, you can uh, hear my voice in your ears for for like a week or so while you listen to it.
1: Sounds good to me. Isaac Butler, thank you so much.
0: John, thank you so much for having me. This has been great.
1: Yes, The Method: How the 20th Century Learned to Act by Isaac Butler is available now wherever you get your good books and it is a heck of a read and it was fascinating stuff talking to him. Up next, The Great Bill Hicks. <laughs> Now you're welcome back to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. Now, next Saturday, that's the 26th of February, we'll see the anniversary of the late, great Bill Hicks, the controversial yet hilarious comedian who was a very unusual comedian in that, unlike... So many of his contemporaries, he had no interest in being a film star or even a TV star to any great extent. He was just married to comedy and he saw it really as a calling. And his comedy routines have been invoked since his passing everywhere from high literary art to you know, other comedians. He was just a hugely influential comedian. Now, a couple of years ago, I did a whole series of profiles of comedians. So I'm going to play you something from a long time ago that I did, but I think this will give you a flavour of the Great Bill Hicks. Now, he his anniversary, it's 28 years, I think it is, is next Saturday. I have too much on the show next week, so I didn't want to miss his anniversary. He was very controversial, but he was incredibly funny. Take a listen to this.
2: By the way, if anyone here is in advertising or marketing, kill yourself. <laughs> you. There's no rationalization for what you do, and you are Satan's little helpers, okay? Kill yourself, seriously. It could be, wrong. I could be
1: right. Anger might not seem like the most obvious emotion for a comedian, but in the case of Bill Hicks, it fueled his hilarity. Hicks was in a permanent state of annoyance at the modern world, and he wanted to reveal the truth as he saw it. But this self-styled preacher was, most importantly, incredibly funny.
2: I guess the most amazing thing about the war, obviously the disparity in the casualties. Iraq, 150,000 casualties. U.S.A. 79. (laughs) 79? Does that mean if we had sent over 80 guys, we still would have won that thing? or what? (laughs) Just one guy in a ticker tape parade. I did it, hey! Born in
1: 1961, Hicks grew up in Houston in Texas in a Southern Baptist household. His childhood in the South stayed with him and he was often very dismissive of his fellow Southerners.
2: I was in Nashville, Tennessee last week and after the show I went to a Waffle House, right? I'm sitting there and I'm eating and I'm reading a book. I don't know anybody, I'm alone. I'm eating and I'm reading a book. And this waitress comes over to me. What's he reading for? (laughs) I said, wow, I've never been asked that. Not what am I reading, but what am I reading for? Well, goddammit, you stumped me. I guess I read for a lot of reasons, but the main one is so I don't end up being a fucking waffle waitress.
1: He had an early love of comedy. And as his parents recount in American, the Bill Hicks story, one of his teachers used to let him actually perform before the
2: class would begin. Well, one of the teachers called me and asked me if I could uh, help her get her class back from Bill. She said I told him he could have five minutes while I was checking the roll, and and she said I can't get it back. I said, that's your problem. You shouldn't have let him get up there.
1: Hicks began performing in clubs as an early teenager. He was a staple on the comedy scene in Texas before he was even legally able to drink. But Hicks' career from here doesn't follow the usual path of sitcoms and then movies. Hicks had little interest in being anything other than a comedian. He wanted to make people laugh, but also to make them think.
2: It occurred to me finally that actually the world is very screwed up and people need comedians to set it right, you know. It's kind of like I heard a good... Uh, description, of humor, it reframes reality in a positive light. So I think comics are really kind of doorways to a, a, a different understanding of a very, very mixed up and very depressing world.
1: Hicks dedicated himself to the art of stand-up, and through the 80s, he toured the American comedy circuit relentlessly, sometimes gigging nearly 300 times in a year.
2: It's great to be here. I thank you. Uh, I've been on the road doing comedy for 10 years now, so bear with me while I plaster on a fake smile and plow through this shit one more time.
1: (laughs) Hicks cast a cold yet funny eye on modern life, and particularly life in America. There was an endless list of everything that he was anti. Organised religion.
2: You know, I don't know what y'all believe and I don't really care. But you have to admit, beliefs are odd. A lot of Christians wear crosses around their necks. Do you think when Jesus comes back, he ever wants to see a cross? (laughs) It's kind of like going up to Jackie Onassis with a little sniper rifle pendant, you know? (laughs) Hey, Jackie, just thinking of John.
1: (laughs) He thought America was sleepwalking through modern life.
2: Go back to bed, America. Your government is in control again. Here, here's American Gladiators. Watch this. Shut up. Go back to bed, America. Here is American Gladiators. Here is 56 channels of it.
1: By the early 90s, Hicks had become a big success, and his first album, Dangerous, had gotten rave reviews, and he played some gigs in England. He was also becoming a darling of the critics, who saw him as someone willing to take risks and talk about subjects others wouldn't dare go near. For many, his analysis of the first Gulf War was spot on.
2: You know he armed Iraq. I I wondered about that too, you know. During the Persian Gulf War, those intelligence reports would come out. Iraq, incredible weapons, incredible weapons. How do you know that? Well. (laughs) We looked at the (laughs) receipt. But as soon as that check clears, we're going in.
1: It was around this time that Hicks had given up alcohol and drugs, which had previously fueled a lot of his stage persona. But this wasn't any kind of road to Damascus' recovery, and he remained a fervent opponent of the war on drugs.
2: How about a positive LSD story? That would be newsworthy. Don't you think? Anybody think that? Just once, to hear a positive LSD story? Today, a young man on acid
0: In 1993,
1: Hicks was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. The diagnosis didn't deter him and he remained relentlessly on stage. Although Hicks had done little TV, as most shows were afraid to touch him, he'd been on Dave Letterman's show many times. He was due to appear on his new show, The Tonight Show, on the 1st of October. He recorded his segment that afternoon, and then it was axed, as it was felt that the material wouldn't go down well with the show's sponsors. Some of the material mocked pro-life advocates. Hicks was so livid, he wrote a 32-page letter to The New Yorker's John Lahr.
0: He wrote me a 32-page letter, uh, handwritten, uh, a, a sort of a creed occur. He couldn't understand uh, the situation just because, you know, he, he, was, he was a free spirit. He was, the whole point of it was a joke. These jokes had import, but he, he, it, was the, it was the prescribing of his freedom which so offended him.
1: Letterman would subsequently air the drop slot many years later and was full of regret about it. Here's a flavor of that now infamous routine.
2: You know, if you're really pro-life, do me a favor. Don't lock arms and block med clinics, okay? If you're so pro-life, do me a favor. Lock arms and block cemeteries, okay? Let's see how committed you are to this idea. She can't come in. She was 98. She was hit by a bus. There's options. Are we going to have her stuffed? What are we going to do with her?
1: Early in 1994, Hicks passed away. Incredibly, from this vantage point, he was only 32. Eddie Izzard, Russell Brand, and just about every contemporary comedian cite him as an inspiration. Now, you might be tempted to hit your radio if I start describing a comedian as a philosopher, but I can't think of a better description.
2: It's just a ride, and we can change it any time we want. Take all that money we spend on weapons and defense each year and instead spend it feeding, clothing, and educating the poor of the world, which it would many times over. Not one human being excluded and we can explore space together, both inner and outer, forever in peace. Thank you very much. You've been great. I hope you enjoy it.
1: It's Bob Dylan's Joker Man bedding down the life and times of the legendary Bill Hicks. And in case you don't know Bill Hicks, I hope that gave you a flavour of his hilarious, his thoughtful, his controversial comedy. Up next, frontman from Roy 7, Paul Walsh, on his favourite movie. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and movie show It's that stage of the week Where we talk to someone About their favourite movie Paul Walsh Is the front man With the beloved Irish indie band Roy Seven Whose hit song We Should Be Lovers Was the most played song On Irish radio In 2011 Roy Seven As you may know Split up in 2014 But last year Announced their return And are due to play Wheelands On the 24th of February And their new single Which I was just listening to And it's a cracker Love is out now More of that and on Paul Walsh is here To chat about his favourite movie. Paul how are you?
3: Ah great John thank you so much for having me on and for that little intro as well I appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Now listen it's a humdinger it's probably in my top 10 favourite movies as well so tell people what you've opted for as your favourite film.
3: I am so surprised that you said that, that it's in your top 10 favourite movies. I figured this would be maybe an unpopular choice with your listeners, but I've decided not to be too clever about it. And I've chosen a film that is a nod to my childhood days, an homage to my youth, and it's um, Superman the Movie, the 1978 Richard Donner film.
1: Oh, lovely. (laughs) And this, of course, is, you know, to my mind, still the greatest Superman ever, the sadly departed Christopher Reeve.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, he brought, I mean, first of all, casting an unknown was a great idea. Mm. Because then we have no preconceived notions about what he's bringing to the table as an actor. I know, I suppose you could argue that was done with Henry Cavill as well. But I think movies of that era brought with them a different sort of texture in relation to the sort of superheroes they created. I think with Superman in the 1978 movie, He's a real um, gentleman. He's chivalrous. He has so many kind of gentlemanly qualities that nowadays it's the bad guy routine. You know, they have to be kind of vicious and aggressive, whereas he was really, as the movie says, the overgrown Boy Scout. And I think (laughs) there's something quite endearing about that and quite Boy Next Door sort of in in a very pleasant way about that. And I think that's one of the reasons why I gravitated towards the movie as a kid. Yeah. Do you remember when you first saw it? Uh, I actually don't I just remember being obsessed with it for a long 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 time but Mm. I I have no recollection as to when I first saw it I recall that my my cousins had copies of it on VHS so I would regularly spin around to theirs to get their versions of it because they never let me hold on to it so I I would go back regularly when I was off school to get Superman 1 and 2 and 3 and whatnot (laughs) Um, and uh, as I said I, I knew the script inside out and then I got Richard Donner's cut a few years back, actually, and, and watched that as well. So all things kind of Superman, I was really uh, interested in from, from a very young age. And that's kind of lasted with me. It's It stuck with me as a lot of things from childhood do. And if yeah. you look at the movie, I mean, okay, 1978, Star Wars came out the year before, I think. Mm-hmm. Of course, we have the John Williams score on it. But if you look at that cast, not only do you have Marlon Brando and Chris Reeve, the newbie, but you've got uh, Gene Hackman, yeah. got Ned Beatty, uh, you got Glenn Ford, Jackie Cooper, and if you go further down the line, Larry Hagman's in it. Uh, Larry, I
1: mean, Hagman. Is Larry, Larry Hagman,
3: who was Larry Hagman plays a, a cameo role when when Lex Luther um, and Otis are planning this a takeover of the missiles, you know, the missiles that are on their way to yes. the base. And the, the, the army forces are there, the military police. And um, it's Pamela, is it Pamela Stevenson? What's, it? no, Valerie, is it Valerie Pernin? Anyway, his his blonde bombshell of a kind of a sidekick, pretends she's had a heart attack or passed out on the road. And all the convoy has to pull up on the road. And there's this beautiful woman wearing a, a big red dress and a buxom. And all the soldiers gather around her. And they're like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? There's this woman in the middle of the road the convoy can't get through and Larry Hagman comes in as kind of the the, uh, the officer in command and says we've got to perform mouth to mouth resuscitation <laughs> and uh, of course all the soldiers are like I'll do it I'll do it I'll do it and Larry Hagman says, I wouldn't have any of my men doing something I wasn't supposed to do myself. <laughs> so in he goes and does it. And that's his only moment in the movie. But, you know, he became a big, big star after that with Dallas, didn't he?
1: Yeah, no, he did. Absolutely. And of course, you're mentioning cast Margot Kidder, the now sadly departed. She was great as Lois Lane as well. We have to mention that, of course. She,
3: she was. And I didn't mean to overlook her that way. But actually, I watched some of the um, screen tests for that role that came out in some of the DVDs that followed in the years yeah. afterwards. Leslie Ann Warren went for it.
1: Okay. And.
3: But I don't know about you, but I find Leslie Ann Warren is Leslie Ann Warren in yeah. so many of her, her performances. But Marco Kidder was a good choice because she's kind of a no nonsense woman anyway. She took mm. no crap from anybody. And, uh, and that comes across. And I think um, Lois Lane has to be that sort of a kick ass female character in a male dominated world. Yeah. And so she, she pulled that off really well.
1: Yeah. So, you know, you're watching DVD extras and screen tests and all that. So the Superman motif and all, is it, it runs deep in your cultural imagination, obviously, then, yeah?
3: It does. And I think possibly because it had infiltrated my subconscious so early on. Yeah. Um, there was something comforting about Superman. Yeah, but That's how that's how I found it anyway. There was something comforting about him. I mean, if you look at the first montage of him, quote unquote, saving people when the suit's been donned and he goes out for the first time, he rescues Lois Lane from the helicopter incident at the Daily Planet. And the next thing he does is he takes a cat out of a tree. You know, <laughs> there's just something, whatever. Yeah. Maybe I just needed that in the moment or at the time, but I just liked him. He was somebody you could kind of look up to and uh, it was all goodness, really.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that that's a great take on it, actually. And your point is really well laid about you know the modern superhero now. You know, Batman is driven by vengeance and darkness, and the darker the better, like the Dark Knight and all that. And you know, even the Spider Man one recently, there's loads. He was really just a bright, fresh air with no real demons. It's refreshing, like
3: it. It is, and if you look at it, of course, we could say it was 1978. The special effects were fairly appalling, and you look at at points when he's flying, and the Mm. suit is green and it's very clear to see the screen behind him and the way it's moving and you can't quite see the wires, but you're almost at that point. But look at the contrast that we have nowadays. It's a CGI overload. We've been mm. desensitized to anything and everything because it's just explosions and destruction, left, right, and centre. There's no kind of simplicity. It's not reliant on the storyline alone carrying the drama and carrying the narrative narrative rather. They all have to end like a Michael Bay movie where it all kicks off, you know? Mm. And that's a real shame because you're losing well, what's the character really about? Well he's here's an orphan he's an orphan kid who's trying to make his way in an alien world. And he can either choose to use his powers for goodness or for for wrongdoing. And he's chosen kind of the light, so to speak. Um, And I think uh, the fact that they didn't have so many CGI options and special effects options Really, I'm I'm glad because I think it reflects better on on the fact that they had to really invest more in the script and where the storyline was going and the characters and the quality of actors they brought to it as well. And it's yeah. remarkable to think that originally Mario Puzo wrote that script.
1: I know. Yeah, I, I was when you emailed Annie, who works with me, you reminded me of that. It's it's the you know the man who gave us the Godfather also gave us Superman. It's hard to credit really.
3: But but apparently he wrote 550 pages of a script. And Richard Donner said, you know, 110 pages is perfect for a script of a movie. And even though they were making Superman 1 and 2 at the same simultaneously, Mm -hmm. he still said it was way too much to shoot a movie. So he brought in a guy called Tom Mankiewicz. And Tom Mankiewicz... I edited the script and brought it down to like the 110 pages but Puzo's script was was torn apart really and and broken down into smaller bits there's one bit that remains I don't know if you remember there's a scene where Superman takes Lois Lane for a flight at nighttime. Yeah, and she recites this poem so to speak called Can You Read My Mind and it's all about her trying to figure out who this alien character is. Yeah. can she? He can literally kind of see through her, but can he read her thoughts as well? And can he tell that she loves him or that she's fallen for him or all this kind of stuff? But that's a Mario Puzo poem or piece of prose. So that's mm-hmm. a nice kind of thing that they held on to with a yeah. movie. But, and that said, like a lot of big movies, it was also beset by problems. And as you probably know, uh, Dick Donner, the director, was let go um mm-hmm. when i think 75 percent of the movie had been shot i mean all the principal photography with gene hackman Marlon brando that had all been shot under dick donner's watch and then they brought in richard lester
0: mm-hmm. um
3: richard lester you know from a hard day's night by the beatles yeah um and he apparently he directed a film called the three musketeers and then the four musketeers but i'm not as familiar with those um but and then he went on to direct superman 3 but he essentially was brought in because the budget was going you know just too far over and uh Dick Donner wasn't talking to the producers anymore So Richard Lester was the go-between And then when Dick Donner was let go now He stepped in and finished it off So okay. He's I, not credited I, with it really but.
1: Yeah, I always thought that was what happened on Superman too. I knew there was a whole palaver about that But I didn't realise he was taken off at the end of Superman
3: No, they were filmed back to back They were filmed at the same ah, time okay. So they started in March I think they started in Pinewood in March 77 right. And they shot all the way through to October 78 so right. they were working on both movies. They spent fifty million at the time. It was the most expensive movie in production. So they spent mm. fifty million on it. They made three hundred million on it in the box office. So good returns. And uh, in fact, that ending in Superman one, I don't know if you recall, but he goes back in time or he sends the world back in time after the earthquake yeah, yeah. to bring Lois Lane back to life. That was supposed to be the ending of Superman two, where the three bad guys from Krypton. General Zod, Ursa yeah. and Nan, they've destroyed the planet and Superman decides, well, this is what he has to do to bring the planet back to life. And um, but Richard Donner decided that actually, you know, if this doesn't work at the box office, it's not gonna be a sequel. So I mm-hmm. might as well use this big moment at the end of Superman one. So okay. that was his that was his plan, but um. Well, wow, so yeah. this,
1: this is an education. You you know this movie really well. Tell me this, right? My take on it, but this is all about you. I really like Superman Two. Few flaws in it as well, and they weren't sure if it was a comedy or not. But I I loved Superman Two as well. Superman Three, I, there was moments in it. I, I I still have time for it. Four was a disaster. These are all the Christopher Reeves, ones. where do you stand on the sequels? That's just my humble okay. opinion.
3: No, I think you've got it spot on. First of all, I think Superman 2 is the most entertaining Superman. Mm. The origin story, sometimes it's a very long movie, Superman the movie as well. Mm. I think the origin story can sometimes drag a bit, whereas Superman 2 is full of action. Um, with the three villains from Zod and yeah. Gene Hackman etc so I think it works a lot better as a piece of en- a standalone piece of entertainment Superman 3 what I didn't like about it was Richard's, Richard Lester's input about the comedy opening sequence mm. you know the bumbling the, the kind of almost slapstick intro with Pamela Stevenson and Richard Pryor and mm. it just as you said there's this half comedy kind of approach to it yeah. and I'm not really comfortable with that I think the whole idea of uh, Clark Kent being a bumbling character I think that's intentional because that's his persona He's, mm. it's his alter ego. He's hiding the fact he doesn't want anybody to think he could possibly be Superman because he's too much of an idiot. Yeah. And I think they overplayed that a bit, or Richard Lester did, and made Superman 3 into something a little bit more hyperbolic. It's too much hyperbole of the yeah. characters, of the narrative. Whereas Superman 4 was all about Christopher Reeve. He wanted to do this whole uh, zeitgeist uh, nuclear war sort of story uh the end towards the end of the cold war and bring in the nuclear man and it just doesn't work no. i don't feel like it works at all no. and almost it's like they never moved with the times you know he looks like he did in 1978 i mean great yeah. for him and his <laughs> he looked after himself but yeah. his suit looked the same nothing really had changed or moved forward and there was a sense of him being in the wrong era or something like that mm. and whilst i think his name is mark Pello, the nuclear man i think he looked great and he was an interesting character it just it just wasn't successfully pulled off i don't think as, as yeah. it would be, unfortunately and that was the end of that then wasn't
1: it yeah absolutely well look this usually runs for about five or six minutes we're nearing 12 so <laughs> i'm so sorry you, no so sorry. no it's great as i say it's it's been a real education i can hear the john williams theme in my head almost you know so uh, listen roy seven the band are back which is great you you decided to get back together in the eye of COVID what was the story with that had you any reservations about reassembling or was it partly COVID inspired or how did it actually come about
3: no, it was actually prior to that. It was in 2018. We were at a birthday party. A few of us from the band were at a friend's birthday party. And we just talked about the idea of playing music again, just getting into a room and playing music. Because if you're playing music since the time of since you we were a kid, it's natural to play or to sing or whatever. And we just wanted to get into a room and play again, which we did at the time. And then we started talking about maybe we'll play again, maybe we'll do something. So it kind of it, it it built from there. And um, 2018 was when we had the first idea. And I suppose COVID provided an opportunity of a bit more spare time and, and a bit more artistic kind of uh, freedom in our in our minds to do it. So yeah. it wasn't really COVID related in that sense. But, you know, as far as I see it, um, we, we naturally like to write music and perform. So it's just another extension of ourselves. I'm glad we're doing it. We don't have the same backing as before. We don't have the big record companies with us anymore. We're doing it as a labor of passion. And as a result of that, I hope to enjoy it a bit more. I hope to have less of the stress. And just more of the the enjoyment and to be able to get on stage without worrying about uh, figures and numbers and publishing companies and record companies and sales figures and all that kind of stuff. I just, I want to just sing, you know.
1: Okay, well, that sounds good to me. So people can catch you, a headline show in Wheelands on February the 24th.
3: That's it, that's it, that's it.
1: Yep. and tickets are available from Roy Seven website, from Whelan's uh, website, master. from Ticketmaster. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, why don't do I just say Ticketmaster? <laughs> all the usual. <laughs> and tell me this finally, then love the new single. Which well, is it the new single? It's been out a while. As I said, I was listening to it today and really enjoying it. Is that has that been out a while or
3: we we only put it online? At, we put it online at the end of last year, but we only sort of started pushing with radio stations in the last few weeks. So okay. it's new to most people. It's brand new. Yeah, exactly.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. And Fair. so I'm sensing then this is. You know, it's more of a cottage industry this time, Uh, and that's that's going to be more pleasing by the sounds of things.
3: Well, actually, we've retained a lot. I mean, we we still work with MCD. We still have our manager Edison Waters, who who also looks after Gavin James. So we've kept a lot of like. The, the personnel that were around us at the time, you mm-hmm. know, we just don't have the same connections in Germany. We signed to Universal in Germany, and then we signed to Warner Music, so we kind of, you know, we, we had a bit of movement there. And record companies we were with Sony ATV for publishing, so we don't have that at the moment. I mean, that might change over the next few mm-hmm. months, but to be honest, at the moment, that's fine for me as well. You know, I'm happy yeah. writing songs and doing a few performances. We've some summer festivals booked in already, so I'm really happy and looking forward to that. And. As, as we were talking about off here, you know, when families kick in as well and you've other responsibilities and everything, I'm, I'm more than happy to be able to perform every few weeks or every summer or every Christmas and, and just enjoy it and uh, rekindle the old songs but write some new ones as well.
1: Great, well look, his favourite movie is without question Superman, and indeed the whole Superman franchise of the first two movies, maybe maybe the first three with the great Christopher Reeve really? <laughs> yeah. Paul Walsh is the frontman of Roy 7 who are happily back together uh, you can catch them in Wheelands on the 24th of February tickets on Ticketmaster obviously, and their new single Love is available to stream in all the usual places and it's a really good listen Paul, lovely to talk to you
3: You too John, thank you so much for having me
1: Why are you here? There must be a reason for you to be here.
0: Yes, hmm? I'm here to fight for truth and justice in the American way. <laughs> You're gonna end up fighting every elected official in this country.
2: I'm sure you don't really mean that, Lois.
0: I don't believe this. Lois? Hmm? I never lie. <gasps>
1: um, uh, oh,
3: just how fast you fly, by the way.
1: Oh, I don't know, really. No, never actually, uh, you know,
0: bothered to time myself. No. Say, why don't we find out? And how do you
2: propose we
1: do that? They bribed me. Wonderful, Superman, the first Superman from 1978. Uh, you heard me talking to Paul Walsh there about it. He really loves that movie, and it was delightful to hear him talk about it. We could have, we could have gone a lot deeper on that. There's all sorts of theories on Superman. You know that it was possibly a metaphor for the Jewish experience, this guy whose homeland is destroyed and he comes to this foreign country. Uh, There's a whole theory that he might be a gay icon. There's, you know, a whole Nietzschean thing, the philosopher Nietzsche who talked about a Superman. There's all sorts of theories that Paul and I could have got into. We didn't want to go into that, but uh, Paul knows his Superman. And he knows his music. And uh, check out Roy Seven at their upcoming gig, in That's it for this week. My thanks to Anne-Marie Kane, who helped out on the show this week, as she does every week. I'm open on Twitter all week long, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. Just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. Next week on the show, there's a new TV show coming to Netflix. Is it a TV show if it's on Netflix? Streaming show. That's coming to Netflix and it's kind of the sequel to Vikings, Vikings Valhalla. And I talked to the entire cast of that and we have some fun chats. So that's on the show next week as are a whole load of other things. Thank you for listening. I will talk to you all next week and have a safe week.